This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. This is uh, now our uh, 57th consecutive program dealing with this. And I guess the question really comes up is, are we really emerging from the pandemic? I mean, we all get this sense that things are better. We're not wearing masks in a lot of places. Uh, Many people have gotten vaccinated. Uh, But, you know, we need to ask the question, what's holding us back? Why are we still dealing with this? And there are a lot of those issues. And we're going to address some of them today. And I think uh, much of this is related to people who feel that they don't need to be vaccinated. We also want to remember what's going on in Haiti. As many of the regular listeners of this program know, I spend a fair amount of time and with visits to Haiti working with Father Rick Frechette. Father Frechette is from Connecticut. He's originally from West Hartford, and he is a Catholic priest and a physician working in Haiti. He lives in Haiti since 1987 and has done tremendous work in building two hospitals, a pediatric hospital and an adult hospital uh, that I have the honor of being able to go down there and work at. Um, Haiti going through political turmoil, nothing is this is not new for Haiti going through political turmoil, but it should serve as a reminder to us on how precious democracy is and how having a stable government really is so crucial to everything across the board, including health care. So we ask that, uh, and I ask that everyone remember Haiti, Um, in their prayers and their thoughts. The statistics continue, and I always like to get a little scorecard here. Uh, We have over 621,000 deaths in the United States as a result of COVID-19. The biggest number that we need to follow now is the vaccination rate. When we look at the entire population of the United States, we have about 48% of the United States population that's fully vaccinated. When you take it to consideration, it's only people over the age of 12 who can be vaccinated. It's closer to 56%. We need to get a much higher number if we're going to all be safe. And, And what has happened is we've divided the country up into different states where some places are safer to be than others. Connecticut, fortunately, is among the safer places. 
our positivity rate is still below 1 at 0.82%. Our vaccination rate for people fully vaccinated is now at 61%. Now, before we pat ourselves on the back, we need to look at what that was two weeks ago. And two weeks ago, right, we were at 59%. So what's happened is we've essentially gone up only two percentage points. And that's our problem here in Connecticut. We are stalled. We are stalled at a substandard number. And we need to get that number higher before we get to the fall. We're also we're going to look at some of the problems we're facing now, especially with the Delta variant. One of the things we like to look at on this program is to look back a little bit in history and see where we've been and where we're going. And there was an interesting article this week in the New England Journal of Medicine dealing with the CT scanner. It is now the 50th anniversary of the first CT scanner being made. And it's interesting, originally, and some people use the term CAT scan, which stands for computerized axial tomography. We've gotten rid of that term because axial means it's only looking at one image, meaning one slice. So an axial image is a cross-section if you're looking at an object. We know that CT scanners now can do sagittal images, coronal images. It could look at a lot of different profiles and views of an object. So it's a CT scanner is how we refer to it. And the CT scan measures density. So obviously a really dense object like bone will look white as opposed to something softer being more dark or air being especially dark. The other thing uh, we look at uh, is with the CT scanner is 50 years ago that was developed in Wimbledon, England by a company called EMI, Electronic Musical Instruments Company. And at the time, they owned the rights to the music of an up-and-coming group called the Beatles. So it was interesting how they took their computer, computer knowledge and applied it to medicine. Now, back then, to do an image when it first started, it took nine days to collect all the information and 25 hours to reconstruct an image. As we developed the CT scanner, it, it got it down to four and a half minutes to collect the information and 20 minutes to reconstruct an image. Now the entire process takes seconds. When they first came up with the CT scanner, they expected that worldwide there would be a need for about 25 of these machines. Just in the United States, we have over 15,000 CT scanners now. The CT scanner has saved countless lives by being able to image a site of disease, whether it be a tumor, an abscess, any type of mass. It clearly revolutionized how medicine is developed. Now, people would probably say, well, what did we do before this? 
And before CT scanning, we had a process called a pneumoencephalogram when we looked at the brain. And when you look at an x-ray, you can see density. And air, as I mentioned, shows up a specific way. So what they used to do was put a needle in the lumbar spine, a spinal tap, and inject air into the ventricles of the brain. So air would rise, and it would show up a different way, and then a special chair that they would tilt to look and see if there were any any dents in these ventricles, these fluid-filled areas of the brain. It was a very, very painful test to do. So I thought it was worthwhile remembering something from the past that has become so commonplace today. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be um, talking a little bit more about everything you've been reading about, the booster shots, the Delta variant, and some remarkable news that we first talked about two weeks ago, which is which way are hospitals going? How is COVID-19 vaccination going to impact employees? In the second half of our program, my guest is going to be Dr. Kristen Zarvos. Dr. Zarvos is a breast surgeon. She's medical director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital. She's been on our show before, actually back in October 5th of 2019, and was a tremendous guest. And we really wanted to get her back on to see how things have changed with COVID-19 pandemic in terms of women's health care and specifically breast cancer. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And we talked in the beginning a little bit about our emergence from the pandemic and and what is really holding us back. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Connecticut Hospital Association initiating a statewide policy that endorses mandatory COVID-19 vaccination for hospital and health systems employees and clinical staff. And I guess the question in my mind was, who is going to be first to step up and do this? and require this and it seems that uh, trinity health announced this week um, trinity health and uh, saint francis being part of trinity health of new england uh, announced that effective immediately the national health system will require all colleagues clinical staff contractors and those conducting business in its health care facilities to be vaccinated against covid 19. It applies to 117,000 employees in 22 states. And basically, it's saying that by September 21st, 2021, all of the people doing any business in their institutions must be vaccinated. And the reason is because they need to ensure safety for their patients. The perfect example being many people in the hospital are immunosuppressed, people undergoing cancer treatment in particular, and other people, people having transplants. 
there is no reason for them to be around people who are vulnerable, people who can't be vaccinated to be around healthcare providers who are not vaccinated and can be carrying the COVID-19 virus. Now, nothing like this comes without resistance, right? So Bacchus Hospital, the nurses unit the union there is now already starting to object to this. Uh, you know, I, I actually find that, you know, we all know how bad it is in nursing homes, right? When this first started, it affected our elderly. And I just found out this week, I, and I should have known, that not all nursing home employees are required to be vaccinated. But that's going to change as well. So the fact that vaccinations are a term of employment is meeting with some resistance. And what they're saying that, well, there, if you have a health reason that can be documented or you have a religious belief. Now, for the regular listeners of this program, I don't need to let you know how I feel about the religious belief. No organized religion is against vaccination. So the question in my mind is, how are they going to, what, what are the rules going to be? I mean, do you need a letter from the bishop or some organized person or some recognized authority? And you're going to have to see some proof because otherwise religious belief just becomes your own personal preference. So it's going to be interesting to see how this is implemented. But I can tell you, that this is not political. I'm sure they don't want to lose good employees. And I have a real feeling that most employees are going to comply. Because in their heart of hearts, healthcare workers do not want to endanger someone else. And if they can't see that, then they're probably in the wrong business. So I applaud Trinity Health and St. Francis Hospital uh, for jumping on this. I, I think we're going to see the same from... Uh, Yale, I think we're going to see the same from Hartford Healthcare, and, and I support that. Um, as far as uh, UConn goes, I don't know what's going to happen because the, everything they do becomes a very protracted union negotiation. So uh, I will defer to them to figure that out. We're also hearing about the universities. So most universities now, in order to assure a safe and healthy environment for their students, are requiring students to be vaccinated. Private universities. So I guess the difference is between private and state, right? So hospitals that are run privately, like Trinity Health, Hartford Healthcare, Yale, okay, are able to implement these things. Private universities like Brown, Yale, um, other universities, I can name many of them here in Connecticut, have already implemented that their students must be vaccinated, as do their professors and other people working in those buildings. Whereas, again, the state universities have required it of students, but again, it's going to be a union negotiation as far as professors. So we've got to get past this. We've got to get past this because this is what's holding us back. Students are going back to school. 28 million students under the age of 12 years old K 
cannot be vaccinated and are going back to school. We don't have a vaccine for them yet. So they're going to have to wear masks. And that's going to be important because we have to protect these children. So as we move through this, we're learning. We are getting back. I'm hopeful that we will have an effective vaccine for children under 12. Like many of the other vaccines that are safe for children under 12. And that people will get it. And start to understand. Now as far as the fall goes. You know, the need for masks are going to be dependent on where you are. If you in Vermont, okay, there's going to be less need for a mask. I mean, talking about if you're vaccinated, okay. If I'm traveling to Missouri, which I hope I don't have to, I'll be wearing a mask a lot. I'm not going to take a chance. I've come this far. Many of us have come this far. Mask isn't such a big deal. And I think the proof of that is Japan. When we look at Japan, they have only 15% of their population vaccinated. But yet, they have very little spread of the COVID-19 virus. Why? Look around. They're all wearing a mask. It's culturally appropriate for them to wear a mask. So... The masks work. And we're probably going to be doing this for a while. Uh, Talking a little bit about the Delta variant and um, the need for a booster. So the Delta variant, for those of you unfamiliar with it, is a much highly more contagious form of the original COVID-19 virus. It's 50% more contagious. It is what we call a more fit virus. It's a more fit variant of the virus. So by in doing so, it can spread highly. In the United States today, it makes up 51% of all infections in this country. So it is the most prevalent form of the virus right now that we are facing. And it's taking all we can do to try and contain this variant. So the issue has come up. Are the current vaccines safe for this virus, for this variant? And the answer is, from what science has told us, yes. The current vaccines are working well against it. Will they continue to? I don't know. And for how long? I don't know. And the reason is, as long as there are pockets of people getting sick in certain states of the United States and other countries, the virus gets smarter and becomes more effective against the vaccines. So we may need a booster at some point. Some people will need a booster sooner than others because they could not be completely protected. These are people who are on immunosuppressant medications that they take for arthritis, uh, organ transplants, things such as that. So their protection against this may not be as complete as someone who is healthy. In which case, those folks probably will need a booster somewhere along the way. But for now, 
it looks like we're doing all right with the current vaccines. And that applies also to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, Moderna vaccine, and the Pfizer vaccine. Much of the data is coming out with the Pfizer vaccine because there's so much data available in a lot of different countries. One thing I learned that I did not know is that the symptoms from the Delta variant, and there's not a lot of information, but in general, they're similar to the Alpha variant, the original COVID-19, headache, sore throat, runny nose. But what they're not seeing very much with the Delta variant is the loss of taste and smell. So it's very interesting how the virus has changed itself from that standpoint. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Kristen Zarvos. Dr. Zarvos is a breast surgeon. She's medical director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital. She's also an advocate for women's health, and specifically women of color and women in unserved populations. We're going to be chatting with her about how COVID-19 has affected specifically the health of women. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Kristen Zarvos back on our program. She is a breast surgeon. She is medical director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital. And I uh, thought it would be great to have her back on. Uh, she is an advocate, really, for, for women's health, and specifically with respect to breast cancer. Um, Kristen, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Dr. Leslie. It's nice to be back with you. I hope you've uh, endured COVID as well as we have at St. Francis. Uh, fortunately, yes. Good. But the battle goes on. And yeah. it's interesting because... Uh, it, I want to get your opinion. This week, some data came out that U.S. cancer deaths have gone down for men by 2.2% and for women, 1.7%. Um, is this drop now? Most of it, they say, is due to the decrease in lung cancer. But how has breast cancer been affected by this? Are the numbers going down? Well, the numbers, the incidence of breast cancer is flat. It's the same if you take into consideration that the population that is highest risk of developing breast cancer are older women. So the highest incidence of breast cancer is in women in their 70s and 80s. And you and I have been in medicine a few decades, and you and I know that we have more and more healthy women in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. So the denominator of women who can develop breast cancer because thanks to People in internal medicine like you, um, women are living. Even though there is the um, an increased denominator, an increased number of women who can develop breast cancer by virtue of living longer, still the number is essentially flat for the incidence of breast cancer. The good news is the death rate from breast cancer has continued to decrease specifically since the 90s because of the onset of using mammography and research uh, that has made enormous advances in chemotherapy and radiation treatments. Since you mentioned the M word, the mammogram, 
there's always some dispute as to when women should go for mammograms, right? We've had some conflicting information in the past between um, the uh, Cancer Society and the federal panel that looked at this. Yes. Can you please tell our listeners what is the teaching now and what should our listeners know about when they should go to get a mammogram? And I'm glad to answer that, but first let me touch briefly on why there's controversy. The new recommendations that come out every few years are based on old information that is reanalyzed by different computer models. And those of us in Connecticut who just weathered another storm know about computer models, don't we? We, we watch the computer models of where a hurricane is going to go or not going to go. So we know that there are multiple models. So the controversy isn't in the data itself. It's how it's interpreted by the computer models. But directly to answer your question, the U.S. Preventive Task Force recommendations stay, state not to start a mammogram until age 50 and to take it uh, and stop at 74. And I'm going to come back and address that in a few minutes. The American Cancer Society recommendations are baseline mammograms at 40 or up to 44 and then annually or every other year. This is so confusing for women when you, you hear this. So what most clinicians are doing looking at these guidelines are talk with your physician about your particular risk. For example, again, women who have the highest incidence of breast cancer in their 70s and 80s. So indeed, if the U.S. Preventive Task Force says stop mammograms at 74, but if you have a very vital 75-year-old who's out running races and healthy, the overall recommendation now is on the older age spectrum is to look at a woman and her overall health. And if you anticipate she's going to live another 10 years, continue mammograms. On the younger age of those guidelines, again, U.S. Preventive Task Force says 50, American Cancer Society says 40, maybe 44. A patient needs to work with her provider, her doctor, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, and look at her risk factors, which is part of our discussion today. Risk factors, strong family history of breast cancer, if a patient has a genetic mutation, or other factors that reflect that she's at a higher risk at a younger age than these guidelines. Let's get to that point, though. And, and the point being, I read an op-ed piece that you wrote, Pulling Back the Veil and Addressing Racial Disparities in Women's Health. And certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted those differences. Can you explain to our listeners what some of the differences are in terms of racial disparities with respect to breast cancer diagnosis and treatment? Yes, so, you know, we've known since the 70s that breast cancer in black women behaves differently than in white women, not the behavior of the women, but the nature of the cancer. So we've known through the 70s and having just reviewed the, the data recently, 35% of black women will develop breast cancer before the age of 50 as compared to 22% of white women. And therefore, getting back to your question about when mammograms should be started, we need to take that in consideration. This data is, has been around a long time. In addition, black women will tend to have a more aggressive type of breast cancer. It's called a triple negative, and let me be clear that I have, 
I've seen and shared in the care of many white women who also have a triple negative cancer, but triple negative means that they're, we're looking for targets on breast cancer, three specific targets, and if a tumor does not have a target for targeted treatment, it's harder to treat, or ha- we have fewer tools in our toolbox to treat it. So most alarmingly is if we look at the data, about 44% of black women, that's about half, will be diagnosed with cancers that are already advanced as compared to a third of white women. And so we, this, is, this is a way we as clinicians can, yes, if a woman has aggressive cancer, but if we find it earlier, it can improve her prognosis, life, quality of life, and duration of life. So how how do we get around that? In other words, why why are we still having this discussion? Is it because mammograms and healthcare are not as accessible uh, for Black women, or well, just can you explain that? I, I wish I could give you all the insights, but I'll explain the structure that that underlies it. This issue. Um, impacts black women of all socioeconomic uh, levels, but it it has to do with multiple factors. One is access. For those women who don't have access to health care because of insurance uh, issues, because of where they live. Now, fortunately, St. Francis has a comprehensive women's center in downtown Hartford, so uh, black women have easy access and are welcome to our center, as well as anybody of any ethnicity, um, so that's not an issue uh, specifically in Hartford. In Washington, D.C., it is, and there was a, a, a segment on the PBS News Hour that looked specifically at having to develop a mammogram mobile unit. But that's not an issue here in Hartford, thank goodness. Access, maybe because of insurance. Number two, I think that we as healthcare providers have been remiss in not sharing the information with women for them to understand their risk factors not in a toxic way, but to give women the facts so they're empowered. And the third level that's most disturbing to me is I believe that healthcare providers aren't aware of this, these facts, even though they've been known since the 70s. And so Trinity is supporting us, not only doing outreach in the community to help women to understand, to be empowered in their health, not just this issue, but all aspects of their health, but also to educate providers, physicians' assistants, nurses, practitioners, nurses, physicians, so that they're equipped with the facts. To get back to your original question, which was a very insightful question, these are the guidelines, but where does this particular person fit into the guidelines? And how can I best serve her by looking at her risk factors in ordering a mammogram or doing a breast exam or looking at her in a different, more um, uh, more in- inclusive way at thinking about breast cancer. Well, in order to support your argument about the lack of education, I had no idea that the difference was 35% to 22% in terms of black women uh, being uh, more susceptible. So um, I would have to say there are a lot of people out there who don't know that who are in health care. But, Dr. Um, Lessie, so that's right. my fault. As, as a, that's, and I say my fault as a, as a breast surgeon. It's our responsibility because these are the people we take care of to share that information with our colleagues. Well, 
we're going to take a short break because then I want to get back and talk a little bit more about the the racial disparities. But I address the issue of apprehension among minority groups in seeking health care. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. Kristen Zarvos. Dr. Zarvos is an advocate for women's health. She is a breast surgeon. She's a medical doctor at St. Francis Hospital. And uh, Kristen, before, uh, we might as well do it now, uh, please get the phone numbers out there. Can you give people the contact information who are listening, who want more information about breast cancer or think they need to access uh, your services over at St. Francis? So the Comprehensive Breast Center number is 860-714-6318. Eight six zero seven one four six three one eight. I am so fortunate w- to work with a great team of uh, care providers, from the receptionist at the front desk and our medical assistants. We have three nurse navigators that work with uh, our breast patients who are specifically diagnosed with breast cancer. We have a great crew of radiologists, but that number will give you access to the breast center. And if a patient has a specific question, she should ask. To speak to a nurse at 860-714-6318. Kristen, the COVID and the pandemic has made us more aware of minority groups and their apprehension about accessing health care. In terms of suspicion, we've heard among the African-American population about Tuskegee uh, and things such as that. Is there apprehension that you've noticed on the part of minority women in accessing your services? Well, no, but but I'm at the other end of the curve. So patients have already had trust to come to the breast center or trusted their um, primary care physicians or gynecologists to refer them in. I think there is apprehension uh, in the community and, and duly understood. I mean, if any of us want to be taken care of by, as a patient, we want to be taken care of by someone who understands us. And I think it's human nature that someone uh, of your same uh, culture or ethnicity might understand you better, maybe even if female or male. Um, And so it takes a leap of faith to believe that you're meeting a stranger as a physician when you're feeling very vulnerable with a breast lump or breast uh, complaint or cancer. Um, we work very hard to treat people, men develop breast cancer too, so I'm going to say male and women with dignity and respect for their cultural beliefs. Um, but, um, you know, I think, I think that's certainly important. Um, I think that in, in the state of Connecticut, um, the uh, hospitals have worked very um, doggedly, actually, to get into the community and make sure that people of all ethnicities uh, would have vaccinations, but you have to build trust. And building trust is a sustainable, uh, only can be sustained. You have to be in the community with outreach workers, working in the churches, the daycare centers, at diaper days to say, we're here and we care about you, whether it's a vaccine or a mammogram. And I think St. Francis does a very good job at doing that, um, and we want to expand that and do that even more on this particular issue, building trust. Uh, 
you know, I've been around for this whole revolution in medicine where we've seen an influx of young women physicians and the numbers have risen. Uh, have you seen a rise in the number of black women who have gone not only gone into medicine but gone into your specialty for women's care and breast surgery? Because, And I guess what I'm getting at is would do patients feel more comfortable dealing with someone of the same race and ethnicity? And do we have I, I an obligation so. to encourage There's, them? I'm going to yeah. answer the second question first. I think it's sure. true. I think any of your audience or even you or yourself, you know, again, um, when you're meeting someone who's of your same culture that you can resonate. But, but as a healthcare provider, um, whether a physician, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, I think that we can build trust if we treat people with dignity and sincerity. Yes, there are more uh, women, uh, black women in medicine across the board, and black surgeons, one of the leading researchers who's now at Cornell Weill, uh, who uh, does research looking at breast cancer in black women and tracing back to genetics to Africa. So there are more black women uh, in surgery and in breast surgeon, but still the greatest proportion is white women. And so... And they're white men, too, who are great doctors. I work with Dr. Ed White, who's a great physician. You don't have to be a female physician to be a great breast surgeon and to resonate with the patients and click to build trust. Um, so, uh, but our, our mission, regardless of a patient's ethnicity, is to look at them as a whole person and try to understand their culture um, and, and so that they know that they can trust us. So we care about them as a person, not a person of a particular ethnicity or religion or socioeconomic group. Kristen, I'd like to touch on a topic and expand upon one that we talked about at the time of your last visit on October 5th, 2019. And that was genetics as a way of preventing cancers in women. And it was something then that you know, we're just starting to do, and it's still something that's fairly experimental from the standpoint of our knowledge being uh, really rudimentary at this point in time. It, do you think there's a barrier there? Because those tests are expensive, right? I mean, when you want to do genetic screening for women who want to know if, based on their family history, they may have cancer. Um, are there barriers to doing that? And can you give us a little update on the the state of genetic testing as screening? Well, I can give you good news on that because the, the NCC and guidelines, their national guidelines that look at patterns of genetic uh, incidence of breast cancer that have broadened so that we can test women, uh, more women than we could have even five years ago. And I'm happy to report that the insurance companies are coming along and covering um, genetic testing. So, for example, at our institution, we have master's degree genetic counselors who will have a discussion with a patient, screen them, um, whether we think they qualify for genetic testing or not, and then um, implement the process of being tested if they're covered. And those genetic test uh, counselors are constantly teaching us at St. Francis every week. They join a multidisciplinary conference to to instruct nurses and physicians where the qualifications are. So the good news is that. The bad news is 70% of women with breast cancer have no family history and do not have a genetic link. That's bad news in that we can't always just 
say, oh, you don't have a family history of breast cancer. Your lump is probably not a cancer. 5% of patients who have breast cancer would have what's called the BRCA mutation gene. So it's a tiny percentage. But when we can identify those women by testing, we know that they have a much higher incidence of having breast cancer and other cancers, associated cancers, ovarian cancer, other cancers as well, and so we can screen and we have measures that we can be more aggressive, order MRIs every year, maybe uh, prophylactic surgery. But let's be clear, that's a tiny percentage of women who develop breast cancer. So frequently, Dr. Alessi, I'll have a patient come in and say, who with breast cancer, and says, yeah, but I don't have anybody in my family, so I thought I could not develop breast cancer. That is a second myth, the first myth we talked about, the, the unknowns, let's say not myths, but the unknowns of young black women develop breast cancer much at a much younger age. Two, the second myth or misunderstanding is that if you must have a family history of breast cancer to develop breast cancer. And the third myth that I think is really important is that women will say, oh, I'm too old to get breast cancer. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, the highest incidence of breast cancer is women in their 70s and 80s. Another myth that I'd like to shatter, I guess, is I had a phone call from a friend. She was on a plane and asked me, she said, you know, I have a lump in my breast. And she said, but it's very painful. And I'm told that if it's painful, it can't be cancer. And thanks to our shows and, and, and your information in the past that I want to emphasize is that I told her, when you get off that plane, get that thing checked, Okay. Because that, that is a fallacy. And, uh, you know, fortunately, she, unfortunately, she did have breast cancer, but uh, was able to get that treated appropriately. Can you help shatter that myth that if it's painful, it can't be cancer? Absolutely. That's a fourth myth. myth. So in general, a painful lump, the majority might be a cyst. But we, I want to, like you're trying to do right now, is empower women with a few have a lump. If you just have pain, if you have nipple drainage, if you have a symptom, see a doctor. Do not make assumptions. Breast cancers can be painful. They might not be painful, but any change in a woman's breast should be uh, acknowledged, examined thoroughly as soon as possible. So thank you for, um, for reversing that myth. And I maybe the fifth myth that I think we have to talk about, let's say if that your friend you described went in with her painful lump, had a mammogram and ultrasound, 15% of breast cancers will not show up on mammogram. So had your friend gone for workup, and, and let's say it hadn't shown up on mammogram, it still needs to be pursued by a specialist. It, so that's the fifth myth that I will, uh, that you and I as a team here are trying to untangle and, and reverse. Kristen, I, I, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, I was going to ask you for a closing message, but I have to tell you, I don't think we could do better than you reviewing those myths and helping to empower women. I look forward to having you back on again um, to talk more about this topic. Thank you. Thank you. Stay well. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Kristen Zarvos. If you have questions for me or for Dr. Zarvos, you can get me at info at alessimd.com. Many thanks to our studio producer. Uh, today it's been Anthony Dorenzo has been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. 
If you missed any part of today's program or would like to share it with someone, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast, and you could download that wherever you get your podcasts. Next up on WTIC, we're going to have Garden Talk with Len. Please do me a favor. If you know someone who's hesitant about getting the COVID-19 vaccine, please try to be patient and educate them as best you can. And if you cannot, if they have questions you can't answer, refer them to a physician or give them my email at info at alessimd.com. With that, we're going to uh, say goodbye. And until next week, please stay healthy.